0: begin now with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this most important gospel according to John. Thank you for the precious message that it gives us, the way that we can have eternal life, a way of eternal life that is not just confined to a few elite, but is open to all of us. Thank you for this. We ask that you would help us to go forth in the power of the Holy Spirit that you have given us to share this message with the world, a world that is desperately in need of the message that you have for them, the message of salvation. We ask that you would help us to further understand it this evening and to be encouraged and strengthened by it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight we're going to begin studying the book of John, part one, Well, have part two next week. John uh, portrays Jesus Christ as the Son of God. The author of the Gospel of John was an eyewitness to the events described in the book. Though the author did not name himself, ever since the time of the early church it's been traditionally believed it was John the son of Zebedee, the brother of the apostle James, and the disciple whom Jesus loved. Of the four gospels, John's has the latest date of composition, written sometime between 80 and 90 AD, we think. There are three views on the authorship of the gospel of John. Traditionally, it is assigned to John the apostle, Some more recent scholars have proposed that it is another John known as John the Elder. Others have suggested that it was a disciple of the Apostle John who got his information from John. However, there is no real evidence for the last two views and there is very strong evidence for John the Apostle, the first view. First, we can look at the internal evidence, the evidence found inside the book We know from reading the Gospel of John that the author was a Jew, he was Jewish in thought, in word, symbols, customs, and knowledge of the Old Testament. He was a Palestinian Jew, knowing well the customs, language, geography, and topography of the land. He was an eyewitness of persons, time, numbers, places, manners, and other details. He was one of the Twelve Apostles. He was one of the disciples referred to, but unnamed in John 21, 2 and 7, along with Peter and Thomas, Nathaniel, and James. He was not Peter, he was not Thomas, he was not Philip or Andrew. All of those are mentioned by name. So he wasn't, the author wasn't one of those. He, he was not James who died in AD 44, his brother James. He, he died quite early in the history of the early church. Uh, not only did John have a brother named James, but also Jesus had a brother named James, and sometimes these two, uh, these two Jameses can be easily confused, but uh, the, James, the brother of John, died quite early in church history, and the James who wrote the, the epistle of James is the James who was the brother of Christ. Thus, by the process of elimination, the author of the gospel must have been the apostle John. He couldn't have been one of the other apostles, so he had to be the apostle John. All the external evidence, the evidence found outside the book, the John Ryland fragment, it's called the John Ryland fragment because it's, that's, the, John Ryland is the name of the library in England where it's found. It includes uh, John 18, 31 through 33 on one side. And then on the other side, it includes John 18, 37, through 38. And this fragment, this papyrus fragment is from early in the second century. Probably sometime between 117 and 138 it confirms that it was written in the first century. How do we know that? Well, the fragment itself was found in Egypt. John was writing in Asia Minor, what is today Turkey, probably in Ephesus. So in order for the gospel of John to be dispersed so widely throughout that region and to reach Egypt, by early in the second century, it had to have been written in the first century. The early testimony of Irenaeus, who knew John's disciple Polycarp, confirms that it was John, the apostle. So Irenaeus was told by Polycarp, and this is only one generation, if you will, removed from the apostle John. So he was knowledgeable, he was a disciple of John, and so he knew that John wrote the gospel. This is that John Ryland's Papyrus, Papyrus P52. In uh, this is a photo of it in the library. So this is how it's on display. Uh, I have a a necktie, I'm wearing a necktie that was designed by uh, James White. Actually has a picture of an image of this papyrus fragment on it. The one on my necktie has both the front side and the back side, so. But it, it, the one on my necktie is actually larger than, than the real than the real thing, because the one on my necktie is about, uh, I don't know, about six inches long. It's one of the pictures of the, of the fragment, whereas the actual fragment is only about the size of a credit card. But this is, uh, incidentally, this is the oldest fragment from the New Testament writings that has so far been discovered this fragment from early in the uh, early in the uh, second century before this was found many uh, liberal critics of the Bible claimed that the Gospel of John was written much later and that it wasn't actually written by John the apostle or an eyewitness but this uh, the discovery of this fragment gives a lie to that so here's the front side of the of the fragment which contains uh, 1 first John 18 uh, 31 and then here's the, the back side which includes uh, 1 first John 18 37 uh, more external evidence evidence found outside the book other early sources including Tatian the Muratorian canon Clement of Alexandria Tertullian and Eusebius confirmed that John wrote it. All of these early sources tell us that John, the apostle John wrote the book. Uh, incidentally, Tatian was the first one, as, as far as we know, to compile a harmony of the gospels. So even, even in the early church, they wanted to know how all, all four of the gospels fit together. The Muratorian Canon is simply a, an early listing of the books in the New Testament canon. And that describes the gospel to John. So here's the things that we know about John. He was the son of Salome and Zebedee, a fisherman. He had a brother named James. I explained to you before how his brother James is different from James, the brother of Jesus. Some say that John was Jesus' cousin. Conjecturing that his mother, Salome, was the Virgin Mary's sister. So some think that John and Jesus were first cousins. Whereas, so, so that would make uh, this John more closely related to Jesus than even John the Baptist, because remember that it's thought that Mary and Elizabeth were related. So so uh, he, he was a, a more distant cousin than, than this John. John's family had servants and official connections in high places. There are several scriptures in John, in Mark, and Luke that, uh, that talk about this: that John's family had servants and official connections in high places. John was one of the twelve apostles. He was first a, a follower of John the Baptist and one of the first to follow Jesus. So he was following John the Baptist, and then he began to follow Jesus. He was the unnamed disciple who appears several times in the text. He was one of the inner circle of apostles along with James and Peter. He was the one who leaned on Jesus' bosom at the Last Supper. He was the beloved disciple of Jesus. He outran Peter to the tomb and was the first disciple to believe in Jesus' resurrection. He was probably the youngest disciple That would explain why he was the last of the disciples to die, is he probably was the youngest. The term beloved often refers to a young person. So when the gospels tell us that John was the beloved apostle, we conclude from that that he was probably young. And also a young person as a general rule can run faster than an older person. So that would explain why he was able to outrun Peter to the tomb. He was the one to whom Jesus committed his mother at his death. He appeared three times in Acts by name, three times where he's mentioned by name in the book of Acts. And in one chapter, he's unnamed, but we conclude that it's John. Uh, he escaped the Neronian persecutions of the late 60s. That's when both Peter and Paul were murdered. But he was uh, later banished by the Roman Emperor Domitian to, to the Isle of Patmos, that's where he wrote the Book of Revelation. He wrote the Gospel of John, as well as the Epistles of John and the Book of Revelation. So there are all the things that we know about John, and we can know quite a bit about him from reading the Gospels and Acts. Right, Uh, let's continue here with the landmarks. John is the most spiritual of all the four Gospels. The book centers on the person and work of Jesus Christ. However, more than his activity, John concentrates on his identity. His emphasis even more than what Jesus did is who Jesus is. The book's spiritual depth and focus on the incarnation of of the God, man, Jesus Christ sets it apart from the other gospels. John doesn't follow the synoptic pattern Of describing Jesus' ministry in Galilee and Judea There is a strong final week emphasis One third of the book deals with Jesus' last eight days The days from from Palm Sunday to the the resurrection And of course John is where we find the most famous verse In the entire Bible And the one most often quoted John 3.16 For God so loved the world That he gave his only begotten son John's overarching theme is found in the frequency of his most used words. The name Jesus and the title Christ are found about 170 170 times. And the word believe appears about 100 times. John wanted us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. The itinerary, the outline of the book, in chapters one through four, we read about the revelation of Christ to the world. In, uh, in chapters five through 12, we read about the rejection of Christ by the world. In uh, 13, one through 16, 24, we read of the revelation of Christ to his disciples. His disciples finally began to understand who he was and what he was going to accomplish. And then in 1625 through 2125 the end of the book we read about the reception of christ by his disciples the gospel most of john's material is unique among the gospels that's why we refer to the other gospels as the synoptic gospels john has quite a different perspective most of his material is unique especially the seven statements Jesus made about himself using the phrase, I am, to identify himself with God and as God. Unlike the other gospel writers, John didn't include any parables, but he did record seven specific miracles that point to Jesus' divinity. Five of which are found only in his account. The synoptic gospel writers talk about miracles, John prefers to use the word signs to describe these supernatural acts that Jesus performed. The seven I ams I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. The expression I am, of course, it takes us clear back to the book of Exodus where God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. So we are dealing with God incarnate, God in the flesh. The seven signs that, that John gives us, seven signs or seven works, he sometimes calls them works, uh, changing water to wine, chapter two, healing an official son chapter 4, healing an invalid man chapter 5, eating 5,000 in chapter 6, walking on water also in chapter 6, healing a man born blind in chapter 9, and raising of Lazarus in chapter 11. The items that you see in red here, those are the ones that are unique to John. So the only two that aren't unique to John are the Feeding of the 5,000 and Walking on Water. All four of the Gospel writers refer to the Feeding of the 5,000 and three of them uh, record Walking on Water. The only one who doesn't is Luke. So five out of those seven signs are unique to John's Gospel. Then there was also the resurrection, the eighth miracle, and the ninth miracle occurred after the resurrection, the large catch of fish. And I'll have more to say about that uh, next week. There's more than meets the eye to this large catch of fish, this final miracle that Jesus performed after his resurrection. Gospel, Another unique aspect of John's gospel is his description of the pre-existent Jesus. In relation to God, Jesus has always existed. John described him as the word by which God spoke the universe into being, and as the light which illuminates everyone's life, pointing them to the truth and love of God. The idea of the word was something that first century Jews and Gentiles were familiar with. So when John described Jesus as the logos, the word, he was willing on ideas that were at least partially understood by both Jews and Gentiles. The Jewish commentary is called the Targum. The Targums are uh, essentially translations of the Old Testament into Aramaic. However, they aren't just simple translations. They are are greatly expanded with a lot of commentary incorporated into the text. But anyway, the, the, the Jewish Targum contained a reference to God as Memra. That was the Aramaic word that it used, which means the word. This title referred to Jesus' act of speaking the world into existence. So John is explaining to the Jewish people that Jesus is that word, he's that Nemra that brought the universe into existence the greeks on the other hand looked at the organization and order of the universe predictable patterns of seasons and stars day and night and came up with a concept to account for it logos or the word now they thought of this logos or word as as kind of a force uh, much like uh, You see in Star Wars, the force. But Jesus, but John is explaining that Jesus is not just a force, he's a person. So John is explaining to the world that this Jesus is the one who brought the universe into existence, but he's not just a force, he's a person. And that we can know him and need to know him if we are to obtain salvation. Jesus power over the cosmos was seen by the fact that he manifested control over every category of the cosmos as listed by the famous Greek philosopher Aristotle in his categories So Jesus fully demonstrated and John records that for our benefit that Jesus had power over every aspect of the cosmos Note Jesus power over Substance what turning water into wine Quantity, how much? Meaning the 5,000. Quality, what kind? The blind man gets quality of sight. If uh, you recall this incident in in John chapter nine, Jesus healed the man of his blindness, but he did it in stages, uh, showing that he had complete control over the universe, over every aspect of the cosmos. He could heal the man partially, he could heal him totally. And that was, is what he eventually did. Relation to what? Raising Lazarus to his new relationship with the living. Space, where? Healing the nobleman's son from a distance. So Jesus didn't even have to be in the immediate vicinity of the person he was feeling, healing. He could do it from a distance. So he had control over the space the spatial aspect of the cosmos. Time, when? Healing a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. This is the incident that takes place at the Pool of Bethesda. So even the fact that this man had been uh, an invalid for most of his life, it, that did not stop Jesus from healing him. That did not prevent Jesus from healing him position on what walking on water an an unnatural position you don't see too many people walking on water when it's in the liquid state anyway there's an unnatural position but jesus was able to do that action from what his victorious death he was able to rise victorious over death to conquer it his passion on what his triumphal triumphant resurrection he rose from the dead he could not be bound by death state or habit under what condition there's that catching multitude of fish again the miracle that he performed after his resurrection so jesus had control over every single aspect of the cosmos the universe but for all of the mystery wonder present in his gospel john's focus was simple Throughout his book, he used the title Jesus Christ. Christ meaning the anointed one or the Messiah. And the word believe, his theme rings loud and clear down to us today. Jesus is God. And here are all the reasons you should believe in him. History, John wrote his gospel a few decades after the resurrection of Jesus. And after the dispersion of Jews and Christians, under the persecution of Nero in the in the 60s AD, uh, and the destruction of the temple in AD 70, during the latter years of his life, John saw the Roman emperors Vespasian, Titus, and Domitian come to power. Some scholars speculate that John wrote during Domitian's reign, so that's why we think. It, John wrote his books in the 90s AD during the reign of Domitian. John may have lived in Ephesus in Asia Minor, what, what is now Turkey, when he wrote his gospel and epistles, but he was exiled to the island of Patmos around AD 95, where he wrote the book of Revelation. John died around AD 98, and he was the last of Jesus' 12 original disciples to die. I mentioned to you before, and that's one of the reasons why we conclude that, that uh, John was probably quite young when he first became a disciple of Jesus. Please and John's gospel. This is another aspect that I wanted to mention uh, where the events in the gospel of John fit into history. Unlike the synoptic gospels, John provides us with a chronological framework within which the events of Christ's ministry are placed. He periodically tells us of the occurrence of one of the annual holy days. So the fact that John gives us this information about the festivals, the holy days during the ministry of Christ, it, it gives us gives us a, a framework, a structure, where we can identify uh, when the ministry occurred, the events in the ministry. From this information, we can get an idea of the length of Christ's ministry and the season of the year in which various events happen. So here's a a table of the feasts in John's gospel. We first read about Passover in the second chapter of John. It's referred to as the Jew's Passover. Then there's a, a bit of a mystery here with this second one in John 5, 1, it doesn't tell us which feast specifically it is. It just calls it a feast of the Jews. Now that phrase, a feast of the Jews, means that it was one of the pilgrimage feasts. It was one of the feasts um, we were, were told in, back in uh, Deuteronomy 16, 16, that three times in the year, all of the males were to travel to the place where God had placed his name. And of course that place eventually became Jerusalem. So that's why it's called a Feast of the Jews because Jerusalem was in Judea, in the Southern part of of Israel. And everyone was required to travel to that place uh, three times in the year. So it had to be one of the the pilgrimage feasts, but there are three of those, uh, the the Passover and, and Pentecost and Tabernacles. So we know that it had to be one of those three, but we're not sure exactly which one. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. The, the third feast that is mentioned is the Passover again, the Passover of feast of the Jews in chapter six. Then in chapter seven, we read about tabernacles, the Jewish feast of tabernacles. And this is where Jesus makes His famous statement about living water. The next feast is maybe a bit of of a surprise to some. Uh, This is Hanukkah, which is also called the Feast of Dedication in John chapter 10. You won't find Hanukkah in the Old Testament because it didn't exist yet then. Hanukkah is something that arose during the time of the Maccabees in the intertestamental period. But here's Jesus at at the feast of dedication, Hanukkah. And uh, it even mentions in that context that it was in the winter, which is when Hanukkah occurs. And then finally, the final Passover, the Passover of the Jews that occurred at the time of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. So those are the feasts that give a, a structure, a framework to the book of John, the Gospel of John. One Bible teacher, Fred Coulter, makes the case that the feast of the Jews that is mentioned in John 5, 1 is Passover. So he says that there were four Passovers during the ministry of Christ. And he concludes that the ministry lasted three and a half years. He thinks that the ministry of Christ began uh, in the autumn preceding that first Passover, so There's a period of three years from Passover number one to Passover number four, and then there's the additional six months or so preceding that, beginning in the autumn. So he thinks the ministry of Christ lasted three and a half years. Another Bible teacher, Peter Micas, believes that the feast mentioned is Pentecost. So he doesn't think it was Passover, he thinks it was Pentecost. And he concludes that there were only three Passovers during the ministry of Christ, and that the ministry lasted two and a half years. So it's somewhere in that range, three and a half years, two and a half years. The travel tips, what we can learn from the book. First of all, Jesus knows your heart. Many people believed in Jesus because of the signs and miracles in performed, not because they were desperate to be healed, but because they wanted a show they wanted uh, an act. They wanted uh, something sensational. But they really weren't willing to change their ways. Jesus is omniscient. He's all-knowing. So he knows if we're just playing church or we're truly committed to him. Jesus helped the helpless. The saying, God helps those who help themselves, is not biblical. You won't find that saying anywhere in the Bible. Although it's surprising how many people do actually believe that that's in the Bible. Not only is it not in the scriptures, but it also goes against the work we see Jesus do over and over again in his earthly ministry. He helped the helpless and the hopeless, not those who help themselves. No matter how much of your own strength you have to fall back on, it will eventually fail you. Whereas God never will. So the idea that... uh, We can do part of our salvation. Jesus just comes along and helps us and does the rest. No, Jesus does the whole thing as far as our salvation is concerned. We are not able to save ourselves even just a little bit. We are completely dependent upon his mercy and grace. Also, Jesus cleans the fish he catches. He loves you as you are, but he also loves you too much to leave you that way. Jesus washing the disciples' feet, as he did at the, the Last Supper, paints a vivid picture of his ongoing work of sanctification in his people. He saved you, he caught you, and reeled you in, and he'll continue to make you more like him, cl- cleaning your feet, as it were, as you walk through a dirty world. The purposes of John. First, there is a Christological purpose that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So there is a a Christological purpose. John wants, wants us to understand who Christ is. There is a biographical purpose. And the biographical purpose of John is supplementary to provide Other material not in the other three Gospels, on the life and teaching of Jesus. That is why John gives us unique information. He wants to supplement what his readers knew from the other three Gospels. Apologetical purposes. There is evidenced by the seven miracles chosen to identify Jesus' claims. The use of the word sign and and the use of the words witness and testimony. So there's a apologetic purpose. John wants us to know that Jesus was able to do miracles that no one else could do. He wanted us to know that Jesus was entirely different, entirely unique. Also, there's a polemical purpose. Polemical, polemics refers to giving arguments There's a polemical purpose to counter an early form of Gnosticism, which denied the deity and full humanity of Christ. So much of of the content you find in the Gospel of John is to counter that influence of early Gnosticism In the first century. There's a spiritual purpose reflected by Clement of Alexandria, who called it a spiritual gospel spiritual in the sense that it it shows us how, how one may have eternal life by knowing the eternal god it doesn't just tell us that eternal life is available through jesus christ it tells us how we can appropriate that salvation to ourselves it shows us how we may have eternal life old testament citations there are only 19 old testament quotations in the gospel of john So he doesn't quote the Old Testament as often as some of the other gospel writers do but there are some 120 possible references or allusions to Old Testament events or personages. Parables, there are no parables in the Gospel of John. We can see that parables are are quite a prominent feature in the the Synoptic Gospels, Uh, but John doesn't do that. Now, John chapter 10 verses one through five comes about as close as he gets, but, but John chapter 10 verses one through five is an illustration or a figure of speech. Not, it's really not a parable. That's the illustration that Jesus gave about uh, the sheep and the sheepfold. The words of Jesus, that's a prominent feature of John's gospel. The gospel expresses Jesus' words Of the 866 verses, 419 are Jesus' words, nearly 50%. So he gives, he he focuses a lot on the, the very words of Jesus. Jesus' discourses. There are 14 discourses in John. There's a discourse about the new birth, about the water of life, about the source of life, about the bread of life. But the source of truth the light of the world and the true object of faith so we gave lengthy discourses on those subjects and John recorded them for us there's more uh, the liberation by truth the good shepherd we read about in, in John chapter 10 uh, the oneness of the father with the father we explained that explained that he's a redeemer of the world he talked about how how he would return to the father he talked about abiding in christ that was the, the lengthy discourse that he gave to his disciples just prior to his arrest and crucifixion and he talked about the holy spirit and the future ministry of the holy spirit how it relates to our future ministry claiming the gospel Those last two chapters 15 and 16 are part of this long discourse that he gave to his disciples just prior to his arrest. Also, regarding the words of Jesus, uh, there are some private conversations, quite a few that are recorded in the Gospel of John. Of course, the most famous is the one, the conversation that he had with Nicodemus about being born again. Then there's the, the lengthy conversation that he had with the Samaritan woman at the well. There's the upper room discourse that uh, Jesus had the night before his crucifixion. There's Jesus' high priestly prayer. And then there are many shorter conversations, private conversations of Jesus that are recorded in the Gospel of John. They're recorded in chapter 7 8 9 10 11 and 12 so there's quite a few of those uh, all, if you consider all of the private conversations of jesus that are mentioned in the book of john that we are told about in the book of john they, they told more than two dozen in all the synoptic gospels and john's gospel have different emphases. it's not that one is right and one is wrong they just have different emphases. So in the Synoptic Gospels, we find an emphasis on Jesus' ministry in Galilee, whereas John gives us an emphasis on Jesus' ministry in Judea, the Southern part of Israel, Galilee being in the North. Uh, As I told you before, there's a great emphasis in the Synoptic Gospels on parables. There aren't really any parables in John's Gospel, but there are some long discourses In the synoptic gospels, there's an emphasis on the kingdom of God. In John's gospel, there's an emphasis on eternal life. So there's just different emphasis and and all of them together provide us with a full complete message. The supplemental nature, I mentioned this before. The supplemental nature of the book of John is indicated by the fact that the author omitted, he just assumed that his readers knew already about these things from the other Gospels, the other three Gospels. This was the last to be written. So he just assumed that his readers were already familiar with many important events in Christ's life, such as his birth, his baptism, his temptation, his transfiguration, the institution of the Lord's Supper, the agony in Gethsemane, and the Ascension. So John didn't spend any time discussing those events because he assumed that his readers were already familiar with him. He wanted to give them some additional information. Other characteristics of the Gospel of John. John has the only record of Jesus' early Judean ministry. As I mentioned, the Synoptic Gospels talk about his early Galilean ministry, but they don't tell us about his early Judean ministry. John has more details on the last days of Jesus than the other Gospels. I mentioned before that all the way from chapter 13 to chapter 21, John is dealing with these events uh, that take place in the last days of Jesus. 90% of, of John's Gospel is unique as compared to the synoptics. So John is giving us mainly additional information that we didn't have from the other Gospels. The name Jesus is used almost exclusively 239 of the 542 times in the gospels are in John. So while the other gospels might refer to Jesus as the son of man or the Lord, John primarily uses the word Jesus, which is the name Jesus. The gospel of John also stresses the humanity of Jesus in that he got tired, he wept, he thirsted, suffered and died and probably the reason that John emphasized those things is he wanted to counter the arguments of the Gnostics because the Gnostics claimed that Jesus wasn't truly human so that's why he wanted to emphasize the fact that Jesus was truly both God and man and then his humanity Experience the same things that we do as human beings there are 26 parallels to the synoptics there there are things that you will find in common with the synoptics and john and i mentioned a couple of those the the uh, two miracles the, the feeding of the five thousand and the walking on water of the 46 names given to christ in the gospels john gives 33 so when John describes the, these long discourses. He gives us his information. Jesus said uh, that I'm the word, I am the vine, all of these things that the titles that, that Jesus had, all of the things that can be ascribed to him, all of the different ways that we can describe who he is and what he has done. I am the way, the truth and the life. There are four movements of Christ that are given to us in John and we can see that summarized in John 16:28. I came from the Father, I have come into the world, I leave the world, I go to the Father. So Jesus came to the came from the Father from heaven to earth. He came into the world to be our sin bearer. And once he had accomplished his task, once he had been crucified and resurrected, he was ready to leave the world and go back to the Father. Also, I want to spend some time talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. Because the gospels focus on the person and work of Jesus Christ and rightly so, we sometimes overlook the involvement of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity in the ministry of Christ. So I wanted to take a look at several scriptures from from John's gospel that that talk about the, the work and the involvement of the Holy Spirit in the ministry of Christ. And John bore witness i saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him i myself did not know him but he who sent me to baptize you with to baptize with water said to me he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain this is though is he who baptizes with the holy spirit now the john that's being talked about here is john the baptist not john the apostle who wrote the gospel but This is John the Baptist, and this, of course, takes place at the time of the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist. God had previously communicated to John that this sign was to indicate the promised Messiah. So when John witnessed this act, he was able to identify the Messiah as Jesus. So God had previously told uh, John the Baptist and explained to him That this was going to happen. When John saw it happen, then he knew that this man was indeed the long awaited promised Messiah. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus referred not to literal water here but to the need for cleansing. He made reference to the spiritual washing or purification of the soul accomplished by the Holy Spirit through the word of God at the moment of salvation. If you misunderstand this passage and you think that he's talking about literal water, that's where some people have gotten the idea that in order to be saved, you gotta be baptized. So they think that uh, baptism is a necessary, Prerequisite for salvation where, Whereas baptism is really Something that we do As a result of saving faith It's not something That, that brings up salvation It's something that we do In obedience to God As a result of his saving grace If you had to be baptized In order to be saved Well then the thief on the cross Was lost, wasn't he? But that's not what happened The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus' point was that just as the wind cannot be controlled or understood by human beings, but its effects can be witnessed, so also it is with the Holy Spirit. We can't see the Holy Spirit but we can see its effects. We can see its results in the lives of the people that it changes. For he whom God has sent, utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. And when it's talking about he whom God has sent, it's talking about Jesus. And he was given the spirit without measure. Christ experienced the Holy Spirit In an unlimited manner Without nature Whoever believes in me As the scripture has said Out of his heart Will flow rivers of living water Now this he said About the spirit Whom those who believed in him were to receive Whereas yet the spirit Had not been given Because Jesus was not yet glorified In the context in which this occurs, is the Feast of Tabernacles in the autumn and fall. And part of the Feast of Tabernacles celebration observance was the water p- pouring ceremony. Water was drawn from the Pool of Ceylon, which is south of the Temple Mount. And it was brought and poured out upon the altar. That was part of the Celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles Uh, In the Passage in in John, it talks about how On the last day of the feast, that great day It's talking about this water pouring ceremony Jesus was the fulfillment of all the Feast of Tabernacles Anticipated He was the fulfillment of everything that the Feast of tabernacles pointed forward to He was the one who provided the living water that gives eternal life to man. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of Truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows, or knows him. So then we go back to that uh, passage in, in the third chapter about the Holy Spirit is like the wind. The world doesn't know anything about it. It neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and he will be in you. The priestly and intercessory work of Christ began with the request that the Father send the Holy Spirit to indwell the People of faith. The Greek word another specifically means another of the same kind, someone like Jesus, like Jesus Himself, who will take his place and do his work. So the Holy Spirit is not just another force, another impersonal force. It's it's God, it's the third person of the Trinity. It's another like Jesus. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Um, Incidentally, many of you probably have not heard this word before politically, it's, um, It's a big deal in church history because it it brought about a big divide between the Western churches and the Eastern churches. Uh, The Western churches say that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, whereas the Eastern churches say it only proceeds from the Father. Now, to most people today, even most Christians today, that doesn't seem like a real big deal, but believe me in throughout church history. It has been a big deal. It's it, uh, Them's fighting words as they said <laughs> People have died over this dispute between whether the Holy Spirit proceeds just from the father or from the father and the son So that's one of those unfortunate incidents in in church history With this with this second promise the second promise of the Holy Spirit Jesus emphasized the Spirit's help for witnessing, proclaiming the gospel. So he, he talks about how, and you also will better witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So the apostles then and, and we today have the privilege of sharing the gospel, of proclaiming this precious message to the world. And when he, it's talking about the Holy Spirit there, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, and righteousness, and judgment. And then in verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. This verse points to the Supernatural revelation of all truth by which God has revealed himself in Christ. And that concludes part one of our study of John. I have some more information for you about the Gospel of John uh, next week. And let's conclude now with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for all that you have given us, all of the information, all the truth that you have given us about the ministry of Christ. We are thankful for the four gospel writers, each one with a slightly different emphasis, but each one giving us a part of the whole story and taken together we learn what we need to know about the life of your son upon this earth the ministry that he performed the power that he expressed through miracles And we thank you most of all for the gift of your son dying for us dying on our behalf that our sins might be forgiven and that we might have eternal life we praise you in the name of your son jesus christ amen